Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Growth League. I'm Diana Kander, a Midwestern mom of two and keynote speaker. And like you, I feel the call to grow. To get us inspired for the week every Monday, I seek out the most remarkable, curious women leaders and uncover their rule for growth. This week's rule for Melanie Bell Maeda is there's power in zooming out. This episode is brought to you by Influence & Co. To find out how Influence & Co. can help you create relevant content, get more leads, improve your website's SEO, and drive exposure for your brand, go to influenceandco.com slash growth. Today's guest, Melanie Bell Maeda, is the head of strategy and operations, insights, and innovation at Google. Previously, she worked at IDEO for 15 years, one of the world's leading design firms. A fun fact about Melanie is that she was the co-director of a dance troupe in college, and recently she just started dancing in her free time again. Melanie, welcome to the show. First, I want to ask, how did you know that dance was something that you wanted to go back to? Well, it really had to do with, you know, when I'm dancing, there is this space, like this kind of mind-body balance that's required. And it means like you have to learn the choreography, right? So you have to have that in your head. But if that's the only place where you're dancing, you're just executing. It doesn't look like dancing. But if you're moving and you don't really have intention about where your next move will be, it just looks really sloppy. And so when you're dancing, it's like you're really required to put those two things together. And part of why I went back was one kind of for the mental release of like when you're in that dance space, you have to be really focused. And also because I found that in my work, I can feel that same dynamic happening where if a meeting isn't going perfectly or a moment isn't happening or a project isn't being executed in the way that I love, it's often that same imbalance of either being too much in my head or being kind of too sloppy with how I'm executing. And so finding a way to bring those two things together and harmonizing those spaces has been really important. And the dancing helps you hone in on those skills of knowing when things are out of whack. It really does. Because when you are in flow in a dance, it's like there's nothing like it. You can feel it. Other people can feel it and get that energy from you and kind of perpetuate it. So dance helps me know what that feeling is. And then to recognize that feeling when I'm in other places when it's not happening and how to light that up. So you worked as a consultant for the world's biggest companies, helping them solve their hairiest problems. And I would love to know, what do you do when you encounter a problem in your work? Like when things get hard, where do you go? Yeah, I love that question. So in the past, when things got really hard, it was like I almost got reductive. Like I kept going back to what I thought were my core strengths, like just what those simplest things were that I could execute. And in some cases that works, but in most cases, if you're trying to tackle something really big, it doesn't. Like getting smaller doesn't help you solve the problem. So the unlock for me was like, well, what if I think bigger? What if I open up the opportunity space? What if I look beyond what the current challenges are? 
and think about, well, how might we tackle this if we go after bigger markets or completely different constituents or think about our network in radically different ways? So using a specific example, I was working in the aging space probably six or seven years ago and really trying to identify how do we unlock this space? There's so many people who are aging and not doing so with the level of dignity and respect and independence that they deserve, that we all deserve. And we're also putting everyone into one big category. It's like either you you are kind of moving into a space of losing your memory or you're running a marathon. And that's not true, right? When you look at like the space of aging. And so in terms of doing that work, one idea was like, well, how do we unlock a market around this? How do we actually take this out of the private sector and move it into the public sector so that people can see that there is demand, so that there can be a voice of the aging population and that businesses can actually do well and do good? Well, kickstarting that market was really hard, even though you know you could see all the numbers. It was billions of dollars flying around in all of the charts. Yet it's a really hard space to design for. It's not something a lot of people like to think about. And so as that got tougher, I just kept getting down to kind of like the smallest denominator of like, can I just sell a project? Can I sell a piece of a project? Can I think of a workshop that might excite people? And in doing so, I lost the bigness. I lost what was exciting about the space to me in the first place. I lost what was compelling about thinking about like the intersections of lifelong education and wellness and contribution and value and all of those things. And so you know, at the end of the program, really kind of took a step back and said, well, what are the bigger ways to think about this? What are ways that we could unlock this that may not just be market-based, but that might ignite and spur people to think about aging quite differently? And that foundation actually led to work that I got to do later around caregiving with another company called The Holding Co. And it just was a big aha moment for me that actually thinking bigger gave us more space to play and move and operate and explore than getting smaller. So, You took a new position at Google three months ago after over 15 years of success at IDEO. What made you seek this reinvention, this new challenge? What is it that makes you want to start over in a sense? Yeah, it's interesting. It was a really, really hard decision. It was one that, like, I'll be honest, I lost sleep over because I was really grappling with a place that I had been for 15 years and a group of folks I had worked with for 15 years and how I had defined myself over that time. But when I looked forward and what I wanted to accomplish, a couple of things came to mind. I obviously like taking on systems questions. Economic mobility is one that is really, really close to my heart and remains close to my heart in terms of the work that I do. And I thought about, well, what do I need to unlock that? When I looked at the communities that I wanted to focus on, underserved communities, black and brown communities that in some spaces don't have access to data and technology in the ways that other communities do, and seeing that as a really critical element in how their voices are at the forefront of designing for the futures that they need and want, I was like, well, where can I do that? How do I learn that? And that's where Google came in. And so when I thought about the opportunity to step into this space and kind of learn that firsthand, hopefully influence that firsthand, it was sort of a leap of faith, right? That I could be new at something, that I could take what I had been good at and hopefully create ways to add value in a new space. And also, you know, show my own kids that we're always learning and growing and that it's important to take steps out of your comfort zone and it's worth it. It's worth it for your growth. It's worth it for the contributions you can make. And that, you know, don't be afraid or be afraid, but maybe have the courage to take the leap. 
I'm starting a list of things I learned for the first time after I turned 40. I think for my kids, but yes. you know, mostly for other 40-year-olds. <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I think, you know, one statistic is that we'll live to be 100. And, you know, for children born now, that that's how old they'll live to be. And when you think about that, it's like, you know, at 40, you have more than half of your life left, right? So even if you started something right now, you could potentially do it for longer than you've done anything else. And when you put it in that context, it's like, why not? Why not give something new a try? How do you want your kids or young people that you encounter to think about their careers or designing their future careers? Well, it's funny. Often people ask like, well, how did you get to where you are? And I'm like, I wish there was a method to my madness. Like looking back at the through line, it becomes much more clear than looking ahead. But the one thing I did do was I was very conscious of when I was in skill building, tool building mode versus when I was in kind of more of a content growth mode. So again, choosing careers where, you know, kind of in the early days doing some professional services work where I was like, I'm learning how to understand the financials of a company. I'm learning what it means to build a foundational strategy. And then there were moments where I was picking more about like, wow, well, you know, when I worked for Virgin Entertainment Group, it's like, this is a completely ambiguous space. We're trying to take this brand and build it out in the US and we have all these rights, but we don't know where to put them. Like, how do I lean into that opportunity? And so for young people coming up, I think worry less about kind of that main end goal that you might have in mind and identify like, what's the next best step that I can take? What feels exciting and interesting to me in the moment? How will I learn and grow from it? Do I have good mentors in that environment? Am I looking at leaders that will teach me what I can do better? Sometimes leaders that might teach you what you don't want to do. Kind of identify those places and then ask yourself the question, like, have I learned what I wanted to learn? And is there more to learn here? Because I know there's a tendency sometimes to want to job hop. And so just making sure that before you do that to kind of the next shiny thing, it's like, did I really get and give everything I could to this opportunity in service of making that next big move? There's a lot going on in the world right now, and more of it than ever seems to be about business. How do workers benefit from the great resignation? Will TikTok change the music industry forever? I'm Nora Ali. And I'm Scott Rogowski. And we host Business Casual, a podcast for Morning Brew that dives into the unexpected business story behind everything. We're bringing you conversations with creators, thinkers, and innovators who can tell you what it all means and why you should care. Listen on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. One question I've never asked anybody on the show so far is about your reverse resume, which is opportunities that you've said no to. So 15 years at IDEO, I'm confident there have been some really cool things that have wound up on your reverse resume. How do you make the decision of whether something is and isn't worth, you know, making a jump or a leap for you? You know, one mentor actually gave me fantastic advice. He had me do this homework where I listed out what I really valued, both personally and professionally. Like, you know, did I want to be like the top person at a firm? Did I want to make a ton of money? What kind of contributions I wanted to make? Like, when did I feel the happiest in my work? And could I start to articulate what environments allowed me to step into that? And then the last was, what are my non-starters? You know, having children, it's like, I really can't move right now because they're in school and, and, and that's a commitment that I'm making for them to be here. And in doing that, when you're talking about a new role, I would go back to that list and I would evaluate the role and say, 
is this role actually doing the things that I say I want to do? Or am I getting buoyed by the excitement of the conversation that I'm having? And the second piece of that is, can I build more of what I want into the job I have? Because it's not going to happen if you don't ask. And so those are often really, really important reflection moments to say, if I were to build anything in this role, and that might not be possible, but at least being able to put that intention out helps you to move toward more of what you do want. So I think it's it's valuable either way you go. So I have a ghost mentor, you know, somebody who's no longer around, but still gives me great advice. And he has this great saying that you should never take a job. You should always make a job, mm. which is very design thinking. Of right. him. <laughs> exactly. But did you take a job at Google or did you create something? I think it's it's both because there's, I think at best in this situation, there's a need from the business. Everything from your skills to how you show up in the world are relevant to that. And then there's like the opportunity that you see through that role, which is ultimately in the best case scenario, why they hire you because there's the job to be done. And then there's kind of like the thinking that you're doing around that role to kind of make it more, to make it additive. Okay, speed round of questions. A lot of good ones. <laughs> I know. You've had great ones. <laughs> okay, what is something that you used to think was a talent that you either had or didn't have, but you've since realized is actually a skill that you can learn and develop? I think it's listening, actually. And that I know that's an odd one. Like that was when I was trying to decide about taking a new role. I reached out to mentors and really respected folks that I had worked with. And their feedback to me was like, you're a really good listener and you reflect that back to people with a level of insight and nuance that lets them know that they've been seen and heard and that there's a way that you're going to build on that. And because I didn't recognize that, it was like, oh, wow, wait, that's a skill I have and not something that I'd always valued. But to your point, once I recognized that, then I said, well, how do I become even better at that? What have you done to become a better listener? Well, one of my the old ways that I would do it was to replay back to people what I've heard. Like I definitely synthesize a conversation and play it back. And like, is that right? Am I hearing the right thing? And now I think I do it through questions, which is slightly different. And the reason I've shifted to asking questions is because within the question, I'm asking for a deeper level of nuance. It actually feels like, wow, if I can get that right in a conversation, we actually advance our thinking or, you know, the work that we're doing so much further. And so I'm really excited to keep working on that. And only because I'm a nerd of skill development do you go into a conversation being like, I'm going to work on my listening skills right now. And then I'm going to reflect back on how that went. You know, I'm going to give myself a one to 10. It's just like the logistics of how you do that. Oh, I do walk into every conversation with an intention, right? So I step back and I say like, what do I think this person wants to talk about? What do I need to accomplish in this meeting? And so what are some of the things I need to be thinking about? One of the things I often do is to remind myself, like, I don't talk right away in conversations. I've been talking a lot today, but I often listen a lot and I have to remind myself, I have a little post-it note on my computer that says, wait for it. Because if I rush into a conversation, like if I feel like I haven't been talking enough or adding value, it's often not right because I'm forcing a comment in a place where it's not. So that wait for it is just to remind myself, it's like, it will come. You will see it in this conversation when it's coming. Any other sticky notes around your computer telling you important things about you? Oh, there is one that uh, I take Peloton classes. And so one of the instructors said, trust that you were made for something great and show up for it. And it just struck me that it's like, 
to show up for yourself, to show up in that place, to know that it's like, it's not about perfection, but it's like part of it is about the process and trust that you're in this moment for a reason. You chose to be in this space for a reason. And so show up for that, show up for that opportunity. And then the last one is lose your determination. I'm actually looking at it. Lose your determination to remain unchanged. And that was something, I feel like that post-it note is probably a few years old. And again, it's like, as we talked about different opportunities crossing your desk, and when you actually choose to make that step change, that one came to mind of like, don't hold on to kind of what you have. It's like, don't remain unchanged. Like actually, you'll know the moment and step into it. Boy, we should start adding a question to the interview guys on what (laughs) sticky notes you have around your computer. Uh, If you wrote a professional development book on any subject, what would it be? I think there's so many books about visionary leadership and what it means to kind of drive people forward and lead from the top. And honestly, that's not my style. My teams shine and it's like I kind of lead from the side. And so (laughs) I've never heard I've never heard that phrase before. Yeah, it's like it's like I kind of want to push, you know, I I don't know. It's like it's often this idea that like there are people that give you wings and then there are people that help point you in the direction of where you're meant to go. And people that I've worked with have told me I'm the second. And so I don't know if I'd write this book, but I wish there was one about that, about the value of leadership from the side and creating that space for more leaders, for more opportunities for leadership can be just as important and valuable as the visionary leader. So powerful. What is the biggest oops of your career when you messed up, you fell down, whatever it might be, and what did you take from that? I recall a meeting um, that was a disaster. It was just the worst. It's like, you know, it's almost like you're watching a movie and you're watching the train wreck (laughs) and you're like, you can't do anything to stop it. And oh, it was the absolute worst. And the two things I learned from that were... Oh, but can you give me some details of the worst? Like, Oh, it was just like every part of the presentation was off. I was off. Content wasn't right. Just, yeah, it was. And you knew it in the meeting. Everyone oh, I knew, knew it. it was going. Yeah, oh, I, you, you could see it. Like I had very strong mentors, advocates in the room, and I could see them literally stand up and start walking to the back because they're like, I can't believe this is happening. It was, I mean, to this day, like it's almost the worst to even tell this story because I'm like, I can feel it coming back in my body right now. And it's the worst. I'm so it was, sorry. It was the worst. But the things I took away from that were a few. One was don't judge yourself by your worst moment because there's a tendency like after that, I was like, I can't do this. Am I like, I just started this cycle of deep, deep self-doubt that wasn't true. I, it was a horrible meeting, full stop. It was not the sum total of what I do or what I'm capable of. And the two people in the meeting who literally stood up and were like wiping their brow still come to me on things. They're still amazing mentors. They still see value and can speak to that. And so making sure that you see that side of it. The second piece was really dissecting like anytime something has gone radically wrong, once you get a little space from it, it's really breaking down what went wrong and why. Because it's actually hard to learn from success because it all blends together. The things that go wrong, I can tell you in like minute detail (laughs) what went wrong. And it helps me not to have that happen again. And so, you know, take those moments for what they are and recognize that it's like, if you do step back and learn from it, if you do understand kind of what you could or should have done differently, you will be better for it. Now, after that, have you had any other bad meetings? 
where you were like, oh, (laughs) definitely, (laughs) definitely had other bad meetings. I think what's interesting, though, is, well, two things. When we were back in person, I would often have offsides. And so calling audibles and being able to say like, hey, this isn't working. Give us 15 minutes to regroup and we'll come back. Like that is definitely something I've instituted and it can turn a meeting around or at least start to right the ship. And it allows you to recognize transparently that it's not going well. And that gives other people faith in you that they're like, was it just me? Or like, they're like, no, she knows. She knows that's bad. And so I have a lot more comfort in redesigning on the fly how to get to an outcome and acknowledge that the setup or whatever wasn't working. But here's what I'm trying to accomplish, like, and invite the group in sometimes to say, like, how do we get there? Because that was my idea. It didn't work. How do we do this? I've seen an audible once in a meeting with a big consulting company. And I was like, what is happening? Because they just all left the room to regroup for five minutes. And then they came back with like a totally different pitch for people who aren't, you know, knowledgeable about the opportunity for Audible and like see a horrible situation happening and think that they're just going to power through it. You know, what advice would you give about how that's an option? Yeah, I think, I mean, it does require that you're kind of have the courage to call it in the room. And that, you know, in fact, sometimes when I do call audibles, it's because someone else in the room may have a better way of doing it than I do. So, you you know, it's like also being really clear that's like, I am totally willing to step back in this moment and let you drive it. If that's the next best idea, let's go for it. And so there has to be a humility in that too. But I think you have to treat that as a moment of kind of strength and leadership of like, are we trying to get to the outcome or am I trying to run the meeting or like, what are you trying to accomplish? Excellent. Welcome to the after party, everybody. I am joined with producer of the show, Adesawa Agbenile, to dive even deeper into Melanie's rule of the power of zooming out. Hello, just really becoming a regular. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Melanie gave two very specific examples of how to use the rule. The first one is when something isn't working at work rather than zooming in and getting stuck in the minutiae of like, let's try to figure out some salvageable piece of this that I can make work. Why not zoom out and say, what was the bigger thing that I was trying to accomplish? And maybe there's a different way for me to use my time and energy to accomplish something much, much bigger than, you know, focusing on something teeny tiny. And the second example she gave was when something went wrong. You know, she gave that great example of her having a horrible presentation and When something like that happens to me or I don't get a keynote speech that I really wanted, you know, it's so easy to get sucked into what didn't work and the huge life implications of that when you can actually zoom out and really not let yourself get sucked into the emotion of the thing that didn't work out. I feel so passionate about this zooming out principle, Adesua that I actually created a tool for a client a few years ago that I'd love to share with people who are listening to the show. It's a zooming out tool. And I had a client that would have all these meetings where people would just show up and talk about the tiny things that they're working on without the bigger context. And zooming out is such a valuable tool to make sure that we're all going in the right direction, that we're learning the right lessons and we're adjusting where necessary. And the last thing I'll say is, I got so excited about the zooming out topic that I went on Zazzle and I made a t-shirt that I'll also put up in the Facebook group in case anybody wants to order it except for me, which says, can we just zoom out for a minute? And uh, I'm excited. I'm excited to get that t-shirt ordered for myself. Adesua, what did you think? First of all, 
I'd love to see this picture. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I am really curious about this zooming out tool because, you know, for someone like me who is not running meetings for huge corporations, but still wants to learn how to zoom out, like, how could I use your tool? Well, I think it's a really powerful tool for somebody who's younger in an organization. Like, you, in any meeting, whenever you want to say something or, or it feels like you want to add, you could always just be like, can we zoom out for a minute? <laughs> and you could ask the bigger, like, zooming out question, and they'll be like, wow, Desawa is just always thinking strategically. You know, like, that's the value I think it could bring to somebody younger in an organization. And I, I think, too, that also ties back into what Melanie was saying about how her superpower is listening and how she asks all these really insightful questions after she hears someone talk. And that pushes the conversation forward. Because I think, especially when you're sort of more junior in an organization, it can feel like there's a lot of pressure for you to have really good ideas or come, you know, to all these meetings prepared. But actually, the place where you can be of most value is by being the person who's just asking the tough questions that makes everyone else think harder. If you want a good question to put into your arsenal of saying like clever things in conversations, you could always say, can we just zoom out for a minute and then ask a follow up question about like something that is larger in context than the thing that you're talking about. And people will be like, oh, my gosh, this is, what an amazing insight. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm really going to start in our next. You're going to use it. Week, I'm just going to be like, let's zoom out. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so join us in the Facebook group to see the cool new t-shirt I've designed. Download the Zoom Out tool if you'd like and engage in conversation about what you thought of the show, what we could be doing better in terms of bringing guests and content. Thank you again to Influence & Co. for sponsoring the show. If you're looking for resources to build a results-driven content marketing strategy, I highly recommend checking out Influence & Co.'s content marketing course. With promo code GROWTH, our listeners can access the course for 50% off. Just visit influencingco.com slash growth to learn more about the course and all the amazing work that this company has done with my content and SEO strategy. That's it for this week's episode of The Growth League. Please make sure that you're subscribed to get all the future episodes and leave us a review to let us know how you're liking the show. I am Diana Kander reminding you that curiosity is your superpower and wishing you an amazing growth-filled week. The Growth League is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Edie Allard, Adesua Agbanile, and Taylor Williamson. Our executive producer is Jenny Kaplan, and our editor is Emily Rudder. 